Hello, everyone, and welcome to Art City Radio, a weekly podcast about art, architecture, and urban design. This is Mary Louise Schumacher. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about an ancient work of art, a play, a film, the places that we go to die, and cruel interview questions. I talked to Anne Basting and Brad Lichtenstein. Anne is a playwright and an expert on aging. Brad is a filmmaker. The two who are married have collaborated on a unique project. Later on, Adam talks to artist Brad Fiore for a lightning round of Art City Asks. And finally, we hear from Deborah Bramer and Kevin Miyazaki, who share their impressions of the Wisconsin Triennial. Okay, let's get started. Anne Basting brought the Odyssey, the epic poem by Homer that has inspired centuries of artists, from Rubens to James Joyce, into a retirement community in Wauwatosa. The Odyssey is about the fundamental strivings of life and a desire for home when nothing else will do. It's a long story, really, but the moral of it might be, simply, that life is short and the gods are capricious, angry buggers sometimes. Anne worked with Sojourn Theater from Portland, Oregon, and the residents at Luther Manor, many of whom have dementia or physical limitations, over the course of a year. And she created, or perhaps instigated is the better term, a play. That play, called Finding Penelope, explores the story of the Odyssey from the perspective of Penelope, the faithful and cunning heroine who weaves a tapestry by day and rips it apart by night. It's an apt metaphor for those suffering from dementia, whose memories are unthreaded and reconstructed again and again, day by day. So Brad Lichtenstein, in turn, made a film about what it meant to make this work of art inside a nursing home. The film, called simply Penelope, has its own Greek choruses, the theater troupe, the staff at Luther Manor, and the residents. When it opens, we encounter a row of elderly ladies who seem to be sleeping the day away in their recliners, and it ends with a moment of profound recognition and transformation. Both the play and the film are about the experience of life and the kind of recognition we find in those we love, even those we believe we've forgotten. Brad's film screens during the Milwaukee Film Festival on October 6th, 7th, and 9th. My conversation with Brad and Anne covers a lot of ground, so we're giving it a little more room than normal. On a personal note, I have enrolled my own mom at Luther Manor in recent weeks, in large part because of what I've learned about that program through Anne and Brad's work. As reviews from me go, that's about as good as it gets. Okay, here's our interview. So I guess I I would really like to start with you, Anne, and just ask you... Why Homer and why the Odyssey? Why was that the source material for the original project? I had been um, talking with uh, one of my mentors, yeah. who's Kathy Woodward, who used to run the Center for 20th Century Studies mm-hmm. back before the turn of the millennium. <laughs> and um, she's always a source of inspiration. And we were talking, and she said, you know, I'm doing a... I, I said, what are you working on? She said, I'm doing a, a paper about how waiting has become stigmatized, Mm. that we can't wait for anything anymore. Mm -hmm. And it just went off that in my head that that's one of the things that is really ageist about our culture, that everything has to be fast Mm -hmm. and that slowness or waiting uh, is seen as 
um, a negative mm-hmm. and that somehow you're powerless in that situation. Mm-hmm. No matter how much, you know, we do the Buddhist thing, we're trying to be in the moment, <laughs> we're trying to do all that stuff. It's just not, you know, that you're supposed to be multitasking, con- multitasking constantly. Yeah. And I, it dawned on me that that was really a root of our fears of aging and fears of powerlessness and fears of living in a care community where you are no longer um, in charge every moment of the day in control of when and where you do things, when things are scheduled. Mm-hmm. I love the Odyssey and the figure of Penelope, um, who is really seen as a figure who waits mm-hmm. for Odysseus to come home. Um, it just, it really hit me that the, the parallels between those two situations. And if we could somehow recuperate the, or explore the image of Penelope in a really deep, complex way, mm-hmm. um, we could also flip on its head the notion that people who live in long-term care are somehow just waiting around, mm-hmm. that there's more going on. And for those who don't know, um, the story, who maybe haven't read the book since college or whenever, or maybe never have. Um, tell us what Penelope's part of the story is. What is her part of this? Well, Odysseus gets all the good travel log. Yeah. <laughs> he gets good travel time. So he he goes off to war. He's not happy about going off to war, by the way. He has an infant son. Yeah. But he goes to the, to the Trojan War for mm-hmm. 10 years, and then he tries to find his way home for 10 years. So he's gone 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so Penelope, his faithful wife, Mm -hmm. um, stays home, raises the kids, raises uh, Telemachus, their son, uh, holds down the fort, keeps peace in Ithaca, and really lives with a lot of uncertainty because she doesn't know if he's coming back or not. Soldiers start returning after the 10 years of war, and mm-hmm. he's not among them. Mm-hmm. So um, that's it's really a pretty complex um, characterization of her. She's also very cunning. She figures out ways to hold the suitors at bay. Mm-hmm. Um, 108 of them at various points um, mm-hmm. <laughs> come and take over her uh, castle mm-hmm. and demand that she choose uh, a new husband. And yeah. she figures out all these ways to postpone them. So she's also very bright. She's a smart woman. She is smart. And some would say she's sort of the hero of the poem. Uh, would you agree with that? I, of course, agree with you. <laughs> and tell me about the weaving that is in the story and how you ended up incorporating that into the play. That's that's one of her cunning tricks. Right. Uh, Penelope um, s- holds off the suitors by saying, I'll pick one. When I finish weaving this um, funeral garb mm-hmm. uh, for my father-in-law, uh, Laertes, and all during the day she and her handmaidens weave, and then at, in the evening they tear it out. Mm-hmm. So uh, this this goes on for three years, which means, of course, none of the suitors are worth her choosing because they aren't so bright that they yeah. figure out that she's <laughs> been tearing it out. And so the weaving becomes there's a lot about story um you don't have texts or letters or phones or emails so she has no word of Odysseus Mm -hmm. anybody who comes nearby she asks for stories about him tell me stories of Odysseus have you heard stories of Odysseus Mm -hmm. and so stories and of course then the weaving of the epic poem itself Mm -hmm. um are is all about uh weaving of narrative and Mm -hmm. the parallel to the weaving of Penelope and is it, I mean, it seems like an apt metaphor for some of the 
um, participants in the play, too. When you think about, for, for example, somebody with Alzheimer's or dementia, they, you know, they almost start their weaving anew every single day, mm-hmm. and then it falls apart, and they begin all over again the next day. I mean, I, it seems sort of appropriate um, for the people that you included in the play as well. There was a scene that was actually, the we called it the weaving scene, yeah. and um, we included, uh, it was staged in the skilled nursing area, and we included uh, people who live there in the scene, mm-hmm. and we included a series of stories um, that we had garnered over the year of being there mm-hmm. from people's own stories of their lives, their own what we called hero stories, yeah. and um we staged it with a, a simple weaving choreography that mm-hmm. they could participate in. It was mm-hmm. modeled for them. Um, and then also using the terminology of weaving itself, warp, weft, shuttle, header, beater. Yeah. Um, and then at some point in the middle of it, um, it stops and starts going backwards to symbolize the unraveling of the weaving and of narrative. Interesting. Um, and the final... And they actually made weavings too, right? They so did they make were, weavings. Yeah, we um, that was the the brainchild of the really brilliant designer that we worked with, Shannon Scrifano, who's out at um, CalArts. She she asked rather uh, late in the process, like uh, the play was going up in March, and this was I think in. Uh, January, she said, can you guys weave something as long as the journey that we're going to take through the facility, which was a- almost a mile long, it was about three quarters of a mile long. Oh, is that right? Wow. And, and they said, they had learned by that point about the improvisational technique of this whole project and that it was really just about, yes, we'll try, yeah. you know, accepting the challenge and trying to stand, you know, step up to it. Yeah. And they said yes, and they didn't know how, but they got a giant roll of the plastic rings that go around six packs, mm-hmm. um, which we didn't know came in rings. They started out by trying to staple them together individually, which didn't work so well. But then we got the giant roll and all this donated fabric and one of the really incredible um, artists that happens to also work at Luther Manor Mm -hmm. figured out a way for them to pass the fabric through the rings in order to weave it. So even people with real profound disabilities could could participate in it. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, they also, there were people who could crochet all the way around the plastic rings. So Mm -hmm. they they were all the way from very elaborate elaborate to beautiful and and very simply done. Right. And at that point in the play, you actually tell these stories too, right? Yep. So, I mean, you know, I, th- I was thinking about um, how artists often will kind of absorb literature and mix it with their own lives and push it back out as their own work. Um, I just saw, you know, T.L. Soline over the weekend who read Moby Dick and he saw it through the lens of his own life and his marriage and he's creating these gorgeous paintings from that. Hmm. Um, that's kind of a common conceit for artists, but what you're doing is putting it through the sieve of the lives of other people. How did you do that? How did you collect those stories and, and put that into your playwriting? It took about a year, and we were doing workshops, and the, the staff was doing activities for a whole year, mm-hmm. um, poems and stories and visual art and the, the weavings mm-hmm. and just um, we did a workshop where Sojourn really um, worked with us through how to how to incorporate sort of imagination and creativity into these mm-hmm. into the theme mm-hmm. 
And then it was a matter of trying to keep up with them, the staff, because they were doing things so fantastically. Um, I remember one time Brad was upset because he didn't get it on camera. One of the um, uh, activity uh, coordinators took a a busload of um, the residents in skilled nursing to a nearby lake in the fall, um, and they read passages from Penelope's story um, Mm -hmm. by the lake because they wanted to feel what it was like to wait for someone to return across the water. Wow. <laughs> I know. How lovely is was, that? I know. And they said the thing that was really fantastic about that was watching people's response to, yeah. to that people would come up and say, what, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. We're reading Homer's Odyssey. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so they were doing activities almost so much that they, they decided they needed a place to put it all. So mm-hmm. they took over a room in independent living mm-hmm. and called it Penelope's room. And it really kind of became a gallery of all the materials that were being generated. Mm-hmm. So I mean, figure it was almost most difficult to figure out what to incorporate. Yeah. Um, and so we pulled it by theme, really. Um, the, one of the core themes is hospitality mm-hmm. and how you how you welcome the stranger, which is a, a core mm-hmm. tenant in Greek hospitality and, and really any culture, mm-hmm. um, how you welcome strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, the meaning of home mm-hmm. was a big one. So there were poems that were created about the meaning of home, and mm-hmm. we incorporated those. Um, Uh, And, of course, the final choral scene, which was a a choreography that was really designed by the residents themselves Mm -hmm. um, about welcoming and and recognition of the stranger. Mm -hmm. And how did you work with participants who have memory problems or have physical limitations? Um, I mean, that... How do you rehearse with people who can't remember? You know, how did you accomplish that? We learned as we went. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a guideline um, other than to be open to figuring out where someone is in the moment and meeting them there. If they need you to repeat it and to ground them, mm-hmm. you have a very succinct description of what you're doing and you repeat that description. Mm-hmm. Um and you do it with an open heart and an earnestness every time you say it to to welcome them back into the moment. Mm-hmm. There became a lot of parallels between welcoming the stranger and a genuine welcoming of the stranger and what we were doing on the spot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, always inviting. Um, people were were resistant to this. It wasn't totally harmonious. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what is this thing? Right. It's this is like kindergarten. Yeah. Uh, you know, if one person liked it, then someone else would not let. You know, just mm-hmm. little spats. You know, and it's also much easier to say no than mm-hmm. to risk breaking your routine when your routine is sometimes what saves you from from revealing symptoms that you might have. Right. So it makes you vulnerable to try something new. Mm -hmm. Um, And our approach was just constant invitation, constant, earnest, playful, warm invitation. And do you have any sense or indication, especially now that some time has gone by, that um, that experience had an impact on the people who were involved and Luther Manor, for that matter, as well? Yeah. We learned really that the... The most powerful thing, I think, is what we had hoped for, Mm -hmm. which is that by layering uh, a place that we think we know what it means, we think we know that this place 
is a is a place to die. Mm-hmm. That it's also we wanted to layer it with meaningfulness and possibility through mm-hmm. art, mm-hmm. Um, through a, tr- a, a wholly transformative transformative experience of a, of a play being staged there, so that the audience would see both a resident in a nursing home who probably has dementia and something else, mm-hmm. someone who lives in Ithaca mm-hmm. where Penelope lives, mm-hmm. and that you never would you maybe look at this place the same way again. You might always see it slightly as a place of possibility as well. Mm-hmm. Also, since then, some of the participants, the residents, um, uh, Rusty and mm-hmm. Tim in particular, um, have gone on and they've now gotten a television and radio studio donated to Luther Manor. Oh, they you're have kidding. KLM <laughs> oh gosh, radio. Wow. Okay. And they write original radio plays and they stage them. Wow. Because they can just read them without memorizing. Are they good? They're they're pretty funny. <laughs> they're cheesy and funny and wonderful and the whole gamut, you know. Mm-hmm. Um it's they've staged two of them so mm-hmm. far since then and um it's something that they own and do themselves, which mm-hmm. is all that I could hope for. And, oh, and, and, how, and can I ask a follow-up yeah, question? Sure, of course. <laughs> and talk about how Penelope has become an adjective and a verb. Oh. Yeah. Penel- the <laughs> other surprising, I think, result for me has been that um, the way we heard some of the Luther Manor staff use the word Penelope, mm-hmm. which is when they talked about um, – Ellen Notsun in particular said, we, we talk about Penelope, we say, is when they're considering a new project to do, mm-hmm. they say, well, is that Penelope enough? Oh. <laughs> is, that, is that Penelope? Meaning, exact, meaning is it good is enough? It, is it is ambitious it, enough? Is it what? ambitious enough? Is it inviting everyone to participate from wherever they are, yeah. or does it demand, and does it bring back in that hierarchy of, well, you can participate and you can't, mm-hmm. or segmenting people rather than embracing everyone right. from wherever they are? Because these facilities are kind of divided up, right, into communities. You're part of the adult day center. You're part of the yep. assisted living center. and yep. Yeah. So Yeah, there's some deep canyons. You guys were running all over the place, we, were, <laughs> right? I mean, well, each you know, we didn't stage anything in independent living, but we were staging scenes in all the other areas, yeah. which was pretty great. And it, but it is this limited ephemeral thing, right? And now it's gone, and that's you know a good time to turn to maybe the film and, <laughs> yeah. and its reason for being. And I have to say, one thing I loved about this film is it didn't just document the play, which I would never expect you to do, Brad, but. It, um, you know, it actually withheld a lot of the play. I mean, I really felt like I felt the loss of not having seen that performance. I, got, I had enough of it to get a sense of it, but I really couldn't construct it back together in my head. So um, it isn't that kind of a documentation. It's telling another story, right? So, so what is that other story? <laughs> well, I hope that it didn't feel like you were deprived. Too it did much. feel like I was deprived, actually, <laughs> but in a good way, you know. Like it, it's this ephemeral thing that you know it existed like a lot of performances, and then they're gone. Yeah. You know. Well, we struggled with that. That was probably the first problem to solve: is that you can't just make a film with a story arc, a narrative, yeah. and have it just show all five scenes of the play, because yeah. that would take up oh, about 35 minutes, and right. then you're pretty much done with the film. So yeah. Yeah. we had to figure out 
what the, the story was that we wanted to tell. And we decided that the story we wanted to tell was to build on this theme of transformation mm-hmm. and to focus on the way in which different people who were involved changed over the course of time that they were working on the Penelope Project. Mm-hmm. And particularly, we focus on uh, Maureen Towie, who is mm-hmm. the director, um, and some of the older residents, to some degree, who change as well. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes those changes are very slight, like mm-hmm. in a single scene when you see Lenny, uh, who is working with, uh, doing choreography and working with people who don't have a whole lot of language or memory, yeah. but who can yeah. use Hawaiian gestures as yeah. a way to participate in the storytelling. And you see him not give up on people who are hunched over and wheelchair-bound and would probably be passed by nine times out of ten. And instead he reaches out and says, no, you've got it. And they do the gesture and they participate in the storytelling. He was amazing. Mm. He's amazing. He's incredible. incredible. You know? Lenny Cruz used to dance with Pina Bausch. Oh, wow. They were so lucky that (laughs) That he landed back in Milwaukee. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And then if you stick to the narrative of of transformation and figure out who your main characters are, it's like, I feel like we penetrated into this world and showed it from two sides. You know, one is that outsiders to a nursing home, most, most of the compelling scenes that are in the film really are more focused on the nursing home, skilled nursing. Um, I think it's two sides in the sense that people who are outside of it Mm -hmm. fear going in because they think it's just a place where people go to die. Right. Right. And the people who are in it, the staff in particular, and people who do devote themselves to visiting become very protective of the people living there. Right. And so they worry about outsiders mm-hmm. and their intrusion. Mm-hmm. And so that's where a lot of the tension in the Penelope film comes from, I think. There's yeah. that scene in particular when uh, some of the theater group is behaving quite unruly yes. in a uh, place where residents go to eat. Yes. And, you know, they're trying to do their homework and they're trying to be cognizant of how right. confusing it could be for somebody with dementia to see what amounts to like a World Wrestling Federation match <laughs> <laughs> between the suitors. Yeah. Um, and it turns out that... You know, I think that scene is one of the important ones because it yeah. shows how you move beyond that uh, fear of hurting this fragile yeah. set of people who look frail, but they're not actually frail. Right. And that's kind of the work that has to be done is to get beyond that point. Yeah. I mean, there was so much worry about that. There was a lot of talk and discussion amongst the group. And then actually, I mean, you really saw it worked just fine. I mean, the, the residents were really, you know, kind of surprised and shocked and kind of delighted. You, you know? know what's cool, too, I think, is that it also <laughs> kind of holds artists more accountable as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one thing you see happen is that the artists initially arrive, then they're playing theater games, and they're doing their artsy things, right. right? Striking unusual poses in weird places in the nursing home and playing with a wheelchair and seeing how it could be sort of a stunt prop. Yeah. And soon they discover that they they don't uh, they they can't be frivolous. Yeah. Um, you know, and art can be frivolous sometimes, right. and particularly self indulgent. And in yeah. fact, when you stage it inside of a community that's made up of real human beings and relationships, that uh, there's another level of accountability that kicks in. Yeah, and that's a lot yeah. that has to do with the transformation of the artist when they come to the nursing home and what they initially thought they'd encounter, and ultimately happens. Yeah. It, it's actually an interesting thing as I've been, you know, I'm doing a lot of teaching of, of community engaged arts and, and particularly this moment in theater for immersive theater events. And, mm-hmm. 
Um, and even for Sojourn, who, who, you know, they said they've done a lot of site-specific work, and they're so smart about how they do it, and they do a lot of engagement and dialogue work. But they, they said this is so hard. We've never staged mm-hmm. anything where people are living. And it just it, that level of accountability ratchets it's up, ratchets the whole thing up to a new level where you every minute of the day what you're creating is in dialogue with the people who are living there with their actual lives their actual yeah. lives living and and there was a like probably the moment and it's not in in the film unfortunately there there was one of the first rehearsals um where there <laughs> we were rehearsing and a gurney came right through the middle of the scene, um, removing someone. And we're in the middle of performing. And it, that was the ultimate test for doing a live performance in a place where death happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You have to incorporate it and create something that envelops that. And it's part of the meaning mm-hmm. um, of what you're doing. I mean... Mm-hmm. That was, we had long conversations about it. And then after that, we were fine. Mm-hmm. We we could really respond to absolutely anything that was happening in the moment. I mean, someone I, with dementia at, repeating something was mild. Yeah. You know, that's nothing. <laughs> right. And I just, I wonder what we have learned about the places where death happens. I mean, what have we learned about um the places where people live at the end of their lives and maybe how they might be different through this project, if at all. I'm signing a book contract with University of Iowa today. I'm doing a, a, an essay um, this week about fear. Figuring out, we'll never conquer it because we're human. Mm-hmm. And mortality doesn't make sense to us. It's so frightening. Um, our little brains can't handle it. But it doesn't need to control us and stop us quite as much as it does. And figuring out how to ease that fear can bring you back into a moment of discovery and connection with people. And the institutions embody that fear in ways that are surprising, I think. We, we were kind of surprised, I think, to find that there was resistance to a longitudinal project, mm-hmm. something that would culminate over the course of two years. Mm-hmm. And it was because, well, people are going to die and they won't be able to be part of it. Why don't you just right. do the play, like short plays that everybody could be in? Right. And we're like, well, of course people are going to pass away. Or let's just change. You know, or change. You know, that happens too. What? I, I think there's a <laughs> distinction between fear and avoidance. Mm-hmm. Not that they're distinct opposites, but that fear is not going to go away. Like the other day, I was on the road on a shoot, and I heard this story on NPR that was very moving about a guy who's a pediatric cancer mm-hmm. doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he deals with death all the time in families. And mm-hmm. he said that he gains all this strength from listening to how families and their children talk when their children are near death. And he mm-hmm. heard this conversation very recently where the parents were telling the child who had lost a lot of sight because Mm -hmm. of the chemotherapy and so forth and its Mm -hmm. intervention, um, said that, you know, you're going to die and you don't need to be afraid because being dead is just like being alive. Mommy and daddy are going to be with you and we're going to get there together. And I was just like, 
blown away, but it made me think about what I've learned from being around Anne a lot and being uh, the director of Almost Home and, and now Penelope, which is that one of the things I've learned from being around older people a lot is how to die. Not that I'm there yet, yeah. Um, but you know, I've been with Andre Steiner, who I made my first film about. He was 89. He died at 101. And you know, when he was ready to die, he was very convincing to me that he's ready to die. That it's okay to die. Mm-hmm. Life doesn't go on forever. Yeah. Um, and and how to live in the moment. And I'm not like a freaky Zen Buddhist person <laughs> at all about this kind of stuff. But I do feel like there's something uh, very valuable about being alive and present. And that um, being in those situations like either filming or for Maureen and the Sojourn Theater Mm -hmm. group, what they learn when they're living with old people is where to see the life Mm -hmm. um, and also to accept the death. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think happens. Well said. Very well said. (laughs) Overall cry. (laughs) (laughs) We are all tearing up a little bit. (laughs) A little. well, and you know, a little bit of. A and by shift. the way, the play, the the <laughs> film is not like all about death. Yeah. It's really sad. It's, it's actually, actually really funny. funny. <laughs> it is very funny, actually. And there's... it will make you cry too. <laughs> yeah. Um, one other thought I had about this project is that you know the other thing that the Odyssey is about is a husband and a wife and recognition and like-mindedness and oh god (laughs) (laughs) sorry um you know we know each other a little bit and i think of you two as being very like-minded um very different artists but this is a project where your your art had a real affinity you know and so i just want to ask you what it's like (laughs) to work together as a married couple i mean how does that work what is that like? You can go first. <laughs> I think we figured it out over the years. Yeah. Um, Anne and I do not work together the way you might imagine, sitting in a room next to each other, writing something together, or editing that something together. That doesn't work. No. Yeah, that does not work. No. I mean, I think what we've been very fortunate, and the older I get, the more I'm aware of how fortunate we are, that we have a lot of compatibility and we care a lot about the same things and mm-hmm. we learn a lot from each other mm-hmm. and we share everything. We share our money, we share our work, we share our children, we share our problems. We share pretty much, I mean, not pretty much, we share everything. I mean, there's nothing that we don't hide, that we hide from, there's nothing we <laughs> hide from each other. There's nothing we don't tell each other. So we share our work and we talk about um, you know, what we're dealing with in, you know, our current projects. And so in this one, you know, we shared ideas and we clashed over ideas. I mean, one of the things that's really hard about a project like this in which we we forged a kind of collaboration is that as the filmmaker, mm-hmm. you know, I'm concerned about story and dramatic arc and to do that in documentary, you need access, mm-hmm. and you also need a certain amount of distance in order to be able to make scenes in the edit room that are as poignant and powerful as possible, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I had to like think of Anne as a character in the film. There's also like the practical business side of yeah. of the money for the film and the schedule and when's it going to be done and this and that and how does it fit into like for instance 
uh, and had you know lectures that mm-hmm. she's giving. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to show a clip. Can I show this clip? Can I show that clip? No, sweetie, that's not ready yet. I'm yeah. not <laughs> able to get that ready. You know, well, can you do it by next Thursday? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I have five other things. And right. So that becomes hard. Right. Um, Plus, she's just protecting the project itself. Too, well, and I was going to say that's I mean, the other thing is that Anne and the whole Sojourn team and Luther Manor they really went into this project as a kind of partnership and collaboration. Yeah. And so it's a little bit like activists working on um, some kind of yeah. uh, campaign where you have to have consensus from the whole group. And uh, filmmaking is not like that. Filmmaking is very dictatorial and yeah. um, a little aggressive, I would say, yeah. in certain ways. So, And what you're doing was so fragile. I mean, it fragile. was very fragile. Yeah. But I, I do want to say that Anne was a very good subject. And <laughs> she, was, she was very open to access. Um, I treasure the collaboration that we have, and, and I think it happens constantly and informally more mm-hmm. than ever happens in a deliberate kind of way. And do one of you need to take the lead, generally speaking? I mean, is it a true collaboration? Is it a partnership? I mean, you're kind of implying, Anne, that that does not happen, that it's more one person's project or another, and the other is kind of a helpmate for one. A, a consultant. And, and a, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that's more of how we collaborate. Mm-hmm. Um, we learned early on that, that we can't write together. Mm-hmm. We have two. We tried two, once. We tried. It didn't work. And we're too strong. On a play. Or a screenplay, a screen, whatever it was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's we're too strong of visions with the writing, um, but the shaping of projects, mm-hmm. the shaping, uh, and and you can probably see some parallels in the in projects that we both lead, but then sort of get each other's feedback on. Mm-hmm. Um, but Anne comes into the edit room and watches yeah. cuts mm-hmm. and gives feedback. She did that with Janesville. She's right. done that with everything. Yeah. Um, I think I'm invited to give feedback on those things you do. Well, and there's the, a talent imbalance. Yeah. <laughs> Anne has most of the talent. No, <laughs> no I, I think we also both something we share in common is that we're we're we hunger for projects that stretch us mm-hmm. to the point where we're on our toes stretching most of the time. We're doing a project, and we just need someone to to hold us a mm-hmm. little bit as we stretch and give us confidence. And it, it often happens that we're stretching in ways that the other person has strengths. Yeah. So that's, that's a really great way to, to collaborate. Nice. A nice pairing. Well, that seems like a good place to leave it. Thanks yeah. you guys for, <laughs> Thank you. for coming in today. I appreciate it. It's our pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, Adam talks to Brad Fiore, who will have work on view at the Knoll Exhibit, a critical read on contemporary art in Milwaukee that opens tonight at Innova. Adam met with Brad just before his Blue Dress Cup, a tongue-in-cheek Olympic-style competition to determine Milwaukee's very best artist. In the spirit of that competition, Adam and Brad tried a first, the Art City Asks Lightning Round, an attempt to get through all of the Art City Asks questions in less than five minutes. Okay, here's Adam Carr and Brad Fiore. All right, ready, set, go. Question number one. What's your favorite breakfast food? Oh, I have an ideal breakfast that I try to do, but because of the realities of my life, I don't get to do very often. Coffee, grapefruit, bread, and hummus. I don't get to do that a lot because I get really antsy about leftovers. And so if I have, like, pizza in the fridge or fried chicken, I will always 
immediately eat that for breakfast in the morning, and I, every single time I regret it. What are you working on right now? I'm glad you asked. I'm working on Blue Dress Cup, which is going to take place on Saturday the 21st in conjunction with Doors Open Milwaukee. Um, and it's happening from 12 to 3. And it is a competition to determine Milwaukee's best artist, measuring four essential skills that are essential to the artist's repertoire, which are sensitivity, social networking, individuality, and patience. What images keep you company in your workspace? I've been trying to collect paintings from friends. So I went to Shane Walsh had a show at Imagination Giants in River West. And it was the first painting that I bought. And it's a painting of a tribe called Quest. He was doing paintings of, like, cassette tapes. So it's a painting of the Midnight Marauders cassette. And I hang it over my desk. And I, I contemplate it as I contemplate my art. I, I, um, you know what I hate about... I'm, like, a very conscious of wanting to sound like profound. So I try to undercut myself because I don't want to, I don't want to perform in that way. And so then I, I try to make like a mockery of that impulse. Uh, Do you want me to leave that in? I would be eternally grateful if you leave that in for everyone to hear about. All right. Tell me about a failed piece you once made and what you learned from it. The, the last question I answered was a failed piece. Uh, what did you learn from that? I learned that you shouldn't worry about what other people are what sort of perceptions they're forming of you. You should just be true to yourself and you should, you should always go for the gold. Who is your guilty pleasure artist? Piet Mondrian. Uh, do you know that guy? He's the, he does the rectangles. I guess I just like that really simple geometry. I like a really like overly simple philosophy that claims that it has accessed like truth on behalf of like all humanity. He made those paintings and he really believed that he was accessing the absolute. And I really like like the arrogance that's behind that. He wouldn't be able to make art today because no one would take him seriously, but people did take him seriously at the time. What do you wish you knew? I don't know if it's knowledge-based, but a job that I really wish I could do is um, like stand-up comedian. They just get up on stage with only their bodies and maybe a microphone if they're lucky. And, and with nothing else, they're able to get reactions out of people um, that are just in the extreme. So like if I, make, if I make an artwork, someone will look at it and they'll sort of like contemplate it. You know, I'm not capable of giving people belly laughs. It's always the sort of like restrained, like, oh yes, I see what you did there. But, but comedian, stand-up comedians go on stage and they get people to react in a way that the people cannot control. They simply have to laugh and they're not able to control it. Yeah, so I wish I, wish I had whatever skill set you need to be able to do that. Would it make you feel better if I, like, edited in a, a laugh track? Yes. <laughs> you know what Nicholas Frank said about my practice what? last week? And I took it as an insult at first, but I think it is so apt now and so beautiful. He said what my practice is, is I am framing my own incompetence. <laughs> Which I think, and what, you can see how I might take that as an insult, but it's totally true. Like, I let myself be neurotic or a sort of afraid, like just not like not capable of having an interview, and I just I and that's how I really feel. But I let that happen. I don't I don't try to cultivate a person who can cope with the interview because I think the person who can't cope with the interview is a lot more interesting. Um, yeah. What was your first real art experience? It was the Knoll Show. I don't remember the year it was, but it was Harvey Opkin North 
Kim Miller, John Riepenhoff, and Peter Berkman. And I, lo and I loved his paintings, they're great. And I think it was the first time that I understood what curation was. Looking at a show rather than a single artwork. And that became really important to me because I learned a little bit about being a producer in a, in a greater capacity than I'd considered it in the past. What are you reading? Right now I'm reading this book about Joan of Arc, just one of my favorite human beings of all time. I think the author of the book is someone called Bernard Shaw, I think. There's this great preface. It just talks about Joan of Arc and her life, and it has these really great little sections where it's like, on Joan's manliness, or on Joan's arrogance, and it just talks about just how much she loved to kill English people, and, um, and just sort of like spit in the faces of like her male superiors who could have prosecuted her as a witch as they ultimately did. She was like one of the first, not one of the first feminists, but a very early feminist to be sure. What do you like the look of? I'm not really a visual guy. So I guess really simple things, really plain things because my brain is not capable of processing just really grand like sort of baroque looking things. Uh, so like the door, the, right now the door in Blue Dress Park is the perfect example of something that I like the look of. What film has most influenced you? So I want to say Eraserhead, but there's a qualification because I think that the movie is way too long. And so I think Eraserhead, but only like five or ten minutes at a time. And so I guess if you want a recommendation, if you go to the scene where they're eating that weird turkey around the dinner table, it's like sort of near the beginning of the movie, if you just take five minutes in that general area, I think that's my favorite film. So you've made it through the gauntlet to the last question. What is art for? All right. So listen, Adam, I respect you as a person. Mary Louise, I respect you as a person. I do not think it's fair to ask someone, especially an artist, this question on the fly. Next time I see Mary Louise, the first thing I'm going to say is, what is art for, Mary Louise? That's a good place to end. I agree. Good night, everybody. Brad Fiore, you won the uh, Art City Asks Lightning Round. I Did I win? What do I get? You get a laugh track right now. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, thanks. When museum curators spend three years combing the state of Wisconsin in order to showcase the art of our region, Showing up for the show is a must. I went to Madison with several of the Art City contributors for the opening of the Wisconsin Triennial. Some of our first impressions are up now at the blog. Here is gallery owner Deborah Bramer and artist and contributor Kevin Miyazaki with their thoughts. Hi, this is Kevin Miyazaki, and I wanted to put a plug in for the work of artist Jason Vaughn, whose photographs are part of the Wisconsin Triennial Exhibition in Madison. Jason's from Northern California originally and moved to Madison just a few years ago. The work he has on view in the exhibition is from his series called Hyde, and it couldn't be more representative of the state he now calls home. The photographs depict deer hunting stands in Wisconsin shot beautifully within the landscape using a large format camera. Vaughn's motivation is rooted in the idea of family tradition and the handing down of practices from one generation to another. And I find that fascinating because many of the structures he's photographed have a patchwork quilt-like quality with the feeling that they've been constructed using unmatching materials and by multiple sets of hands. I had a chance to meet Jason at the opening of the Triennial and he told me that hunting wasn't part of his culture while growing up in Northern California, which I can relate to myself having grown up here in Wisconsin, but not part of a hunting tradition. 
sometimes I feel like the most compelling art can be made when creators take themselves out of their own realm of knowledge and comfort. Jason has done just that and has found rich territory to mine and connections to be made in his own life. Don't miss the beautiful photographs of Jason Vaughn in the 2013 Wisconsin Triennial. Hi, this is Deb Bramer, and I'm calling into Art City about the Madison Triennial. Every triennial has a different vibe, and this one felt well-behaved, as if the artists were being gracious hosts to the audience. Much of the well-manicured, smart-looking work seemed freshly driven from the MFA showroom. That's why, surprisingly, it was the time-based video work that stood out for me. It felt a little fresher. Unlike previous generations of media artists, it seems like we've reached a point where the technology is more integrated to the idea and form of the work, with the TV set sound screens being less obtrusive and clunky. Only one work was traditionally staged as a projection in its own home. Jose Carlos Texera, who is teaching at UW-Madison but from Portugal, presented a piece called The Fall. This was an elegant, visually simple project. One by one, individuals faced the camera, said what it feels like to fall down, and then took a spot on the center of a dramatically lit stage and fell. What was mesmerizing was that each person spoke of falling in such different terms, and each fall was a dramatically different mini-performance that spoke of individuality and how the way we think and process life takes form in our physical gestures. The pacing and simplicity of this piece gave us time to think. I was surprised at how it held me until the very end. Nearby, a different work by Milwaukee Santiago Cocujo employed TV monitors in a stage tableau of glass shelves, still images, tinfoil busts, and vinyl images stuck to the wall. I like this piece for its unresolved quality, almost the opposite of Texera's focused and refined project. Santiago staged an associative, discursive encounter. The questions of what does it mean cannot easily be answered. We have to bring our own associations to the process and see where we end up. Well, it could be about death. It could be about the multifaceted way travel in cities and memories lodge in nonlinear ways. All I know is that like a bad song lyric that gets stuck in your head, sometimes it is the nonsensical, less buttoned-up moments of a large art experience that you take home. Kakujo made two tinfoil busts of his head to sit amidst this installation. They were so weird, obtuse, and silly that for me, they anchored the entire triennial and maybe stood as a beacon or a counterpoint to the larger, polite, meticulousness of much of the show. Thank you. This has been Art City Radio, a weekly podcast about art, architecture, and urban design. This is Mary Louise Schumacher. I'm the art and architecture critic at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Art City Radio is produced by Adam Carr. For more about these stories and others, you can always find us online at jsonline.com slash artcity. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.